Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with uh, another special episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We're happy to welcome you to a rather unique program, uh, this one talking about archaeology in particularly unusual parts of the world. Today we're going to discuss uh, archaeology in the way far north, and it's called Doing Archaeology Above the Arctic Circle. Um, This is not an area that a lot of people know a whole lot about in terms of the archaeological record and the way the record is actually dispensed. Uh, A lot of people are just sort of stuck in discussing archaeology in more temperate parts of the world, but I'm very happy to have with me um, one of the uh, foremost experts on northernmost archaeology, and that is Dr. Ann Jensen. Uh, Dr. Jensen is a 17-year resident of Barrow, Alaska. Her anthropological fieldwork in Alaska extends back for many years, and she's worked in villages throughout the states and has been principal investigator on numerous archaeology projects, especially on the North Slope. She has uh, completed uh, recently a fieldwork to salvage an eroding house at the Wolakpa site, and she hopes to continue doing research on that project going into next year. And she has also undertaken many, many uh, NSF, uh, well, not many, many, but uh, several NSF grants, National Science Foundation research grants, and she is the principal investigator on an NSF-funded project called Learning from the Past, Archaeology of Nuvok, which analyzes the excavations of a major cemetery and newly discovered habitation site, as well as uh, smaller NSF projects working with indigenous collections. Much of the work on these projects has been done by local and international high school and college students and volunteers. Her current research uh, focuses on human adaptation in the Arctic and subarctic environments, coastal adaptations in the north, global change effects on the archaeological and paleoecological record, digital archaeology, and paleoeconomy and paleoenvironments. A lot of these are technical terms, but uh, these will come and become more fast, uh, manifest as we discuss the program. Dr. Jensen, thank you so much for appearing on the program. 
Well, thank you for having me. And I guess one of the questions that I'm guessing is on the tip of many listeners' tongues is how did you get into Arctic archaeology? Are you from the area, and how did you get started in this kind of research? Well, no, I'm not from the area. I actually was born in Milwaukee and grew up in upstate New York and went to college in Bryn Mawr and was originally going to be a veterinarian. And I actually took anthropology to fulfill a divisional requirement and fell in love with it. And uh, it so happened that my professor for the first half of the course, which was the archaeology part, was an Arctic archaeologist, Dick Jordan, the late Dick Jordan. And I found it fascinating. Also, um, the Danish side of my family, one of my aunts had worked in Denmark or in Greenland for a while until she caught tuberculosis and got sent home. And another one actually taught at an adult school that had a large Greenland, you know, transplanted Greenland student population. So all of that somehow wound up with me having a fascination for the Arctic. And so I really just was fascinated with the archaeology, the questions, the place, the people. I really like the Arctic. I don't particularly like hot weather. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's, you know, that's kind that, of how that's I That's about up as here. far from hot weather as you could possibly get. Um, right. How is it? How is it actually doing field work out there, and what do you have to prep for? Uh, this is before we get into the actual uh, discussion of the findings. What do you have to prep for, and how do you have? To, when is when are the excavations done, and how is scheduling worked out? Okay, well, uh, one the, the ground is essentially frozen. Most of the ground is frozen year round. Uh, there's a small what is called the active layer, the part that thaws, which if you don't actually excavate depending how far north you are um it runs anywhere from uh oh say 30 centimeters so about a foot to maybe a meter so roughly a yard uh of thaw and uh, so you have to pick a time when the thaw is going to start. So the snow gets off the ground even in the extreme north of Alaska, which is which is where I live uh, and work mostly, by usually late June. Sea ice is still usually hanging around. But by late June, the ground's definitely bare. But it's frozen solid, so you don't really want to start field work then. You want to wait until uh, a couple weeks into July when you have at least a little thaw. Uh, so that's that's part of it. Then there's the logistics of getting to your site. And that, depending where you are, can be quite complicated. If, you, if it's a place you have to go to by boat, you have to wait for the sea ice to be gone. Uh, if it's a place you can get to on land, you have to wait at least till it's reasonable to travel uh, with a four-wheel or ATVs uh, as opposed to, to snow machines. So it's, it's uh, you know, you have to, to plan for the specific place. Uh, Sometimes you may want to pre-position heavy gear uh, earlier in the year when you can, say, get to a site by snow machine rather than having to go on a four-wheeler because you can haul much more on a sled than you can uh, with a, you know, in carts or whatever. Uh, so there's there's a lot of that. There's also, of course, uh, there's the there's the all the issues regarding whether or not you can actually dig at a particular site. Uh, most of what I've done has actually been at the request of the local community uh, on lands that belong to the village corporation. They, the native claims were settled in Alaska by transferring land to corporations rather than tribes. So 
uh, much of the native land, most of the native land is actually held by by for-profit corporations. But uh, where I work in the North Slope Borough, there are also, as there are in most boroughs or counties, is what what they're this governmental unit would be called in most of the U.S., is you have to get permits and all that sort of thing. So, and the permitting people want to make sure that the landowners and that the general public are fine with you excavating sites. So there's a fair bit of preparation that has to be done beforehand, a lot of filling out of forms and, and getting permits, um, and, you know, whether, the, irrespective of who's funding the thing. Um, and so that has to happen. So you actually really, you don't usually start excavating uh, less than a year after you get the idea, and often a bit more. Uh, this summer was a salvage thing, so that was a little bit different. Um, that was kind of an emergency thing, and it was it was on corporation land, so they basically could just send me. I mean, they're paying me anyway, so so we we so started that. So the corporation, that. the corporation is funding it. Well, uh, we actually got some funds from the from the local government to to do the work, but you know, we started a few days before the funds actually. You know, came through just because sure. uh, it was it was it was an emergency. But uh, and we're we're planning if if we're lucky, we'll you know get an NSF grant and possibly some other funding to continue it because there's there's still more there and people are interested obviously in their heritage and it's not going to stay put. So. Um, so so again, the duration of the field season is variable depending on where you are in the state or the weather well, conditions. All of the above. Um, I have worked, goodness, I have worked into October in Point Hope, which is about 300 miles south of here, um, because and it was. It's also gravel where I was was a gravel beach because there was a, a seawall project and they were going to basically destroy an Ipetak house in the process of building the seawall. So we had to finish salvaging it, and they didn't actually decide to put the seawall where they put it until in early September. So. Um, I've also done field work in Onyctuvik Pass in October, which was really a challenge because that was way too late. But uh, so they'd had the typical problem of just not believing that they really had to comply with the law until way too late. So I wound up having to do the archaeology in October, or they would have going to lose an entire construction season. Uh, and since it was housing, and uh, there's a housing shortage in the village, we we uh, we figured out a way to get it done. It was a very small project area, and and rather low probability, but there's been so little work done there that people, you know, you, it wasn't something you just wanted to go ahead and write off. Uh, sure. So, uh, and where, do you, where did you set up your field station and where did you set up an encampment and uh, were there in most places, let's just talk generically, in, in, in many places I assume that if you're outside of Fairbanks or Anchorage or Juneau or one of those major cities, then it wouldn't be that much of a problem to find housing and to set up field field headquarters. But if you're out way back, way out up in the, the, the uh, remote areas of the state, how do you do that? Okay, so if you're not near a village, most most villages have a hotel, or and usually if you're working around a village, you're doing something with the village, or you're doing some cultural resources surveys for something that the village wants built. So, at the worst, you know you'll wind up sleeping under the the pool table in the in the rec center or something. I've done that uh, because that's all they had. They didn't have a hotel or anything. Right, you know? and you, right. As long as you're up by the time people wanted to start playing pool at seven, it was fine. Um, but playing pool at uh, seven. Well, you know, there's not a lot of jobs in some of these communities, and if the That's weather's right. not good for hunting or whatever, you know, and you're up, you guys get up, and you know, they look at the weather, and if the weather's not 
suitable for going out in boats or whatever it is that you know they do there. Of course. Well, you know they don't necessarily go back to bed. So sometimes they, somebody wanders over the rec center and starts shooting pool. But anyway, uh, yeah, it it uh, so yeah, you do normally uh, if you're working close to town, usually you can manage to find a place to stay in town. If you're further out, and we've we've done several projects further out that I can can point at, you try to find a place. Uh, as close to but not exactly on top of the site if that's possible. Some sites are so big or, or so undefined that you don't really know where you're going to put your camp. Or, for example, at Point Franklin, uh, we, we a site called Pingasugaruk, it wasn't exactly clear where all the houses were. It was a large village. And really the only place you could camp there, uh, assuming you were actually going to camp and not use four-wheelers from someplace far away, was kind of on the site we tried to pick places for the tents and and whatnot that were not on top of any visible house mounds and and as far away from house mounds as we could get but of course you don't want to be in a pond either so you know it was a bit of a challenge i mean sometimes there's all you can do is just try to be careful and not destroy too much archaeology um but you know you can't you can't move miles off of site and and spend your entire day driving back and forth because you'll never get any work done and you have a very short season uh, a lot of places, really realistically, uh, you've got about a month to a month and a half, in part because you don't have good thaw before that, in part because a lot of your crew uh, tend to be um, going back to college or, or high school, and you know they need to appear. High school starts in, in August, so you know people need to be done and out of the field by, by the second week of August because they usually want to you know have a few couple weeks off, get their school clothes, all that good stuff before they, they actually go back to class. Um, so, and, and a lot of the out-of-state students want to have a, you know, a week or so to kind of check out stuff in, in southerly parts of Alaska before they have to go back to college. So, And we will continue our discussion with Dr. Ann Jensen uh, after these words. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com When you think of museums, what comes to mind? Is it ancient history? Rotating displays of collections? Are they nice places to visit? Or are they essential to our cities and society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert. We'll discuss what the attraction is and historical importance of museums and what they contribute to the economic makeup of our cities and country. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris Efesiu. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. And this is Joe Schildenrein back with a special segment of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are talking about doing archaeology in the extreme environment of the Arctic area. And my my guest is Dr. Ann Jensen, who is one of the authorities on uh, doing work in the Arctic. And uh, we have been discussing in the break, and, and Ann had mentioned that one of the comments that she's always peppered with when she does interviews or tours or brings people around to the excavation sites is, isn't it cold? And so let me ask you, isn't it cold? How cold is it? And how do you get it done? Well, yes, usually it's cold. We have the the odd days when it goes up to 60, uh, but then usually most of the crews complain about it being hot. So, and (laughs) also that can mean... (laughs) That could also mean there's a lot of mosquitoes. So, uh, in general, I'd actually rather have it a little colder. Uh, it mostly in the summer. I think the average in Barrow is about 40 degrees, 40 to 42 degrees in the months that we'd actually be working. July is actually the warmest month. August, it's already cooling off, and the, the sun is starting to go down um, for at least a few hours. Um, so, yeah, it's cold. the The real challenge for a lot of the coastal environment, where I tend to do most of my work is that it's always windy. So it may be 40, but then there's a wind chill. So, you know, you could be looking at, at a wind chill of, of below freezing um, very easily. And I have worked I have worked in Onyctuvik Pass when it was below zero, but there's not much wind in Onyctuvik Pass. So it wasn't, <laughs> it was quite the challenge in Onyctuvik Pass, let me tell you. Um, so how do you get it done? Well, part of it is, uh, depends on the environment. Uh, the site at at Nuvuk, Point Barrow, the very tip of Point Barrow, is actually very well-drained gravel. So it doesn't free the upper layers, at least for about the top meter or about the top yard. There isn't enough moisture in the gravel to freeze solid. So you can basically excavate there. I could probably go out there and excavate now or the middle of winter if I was demented enough. Mm. Um, but well, it's a little hard to work in the dark with headlamps, and it's just no question. Cold. And that's that's Air. the other issue. The other issue is available yeah. light. Exactly, which is why October really is is problematic. I mean, it's it's uh, Point Hope. We actually were working with a construction crew, and we had to spend the first two hours with our four wheelers parked around the excavation with the light headlights shining into them, because um, sure. we had to be down there anyway to monitor what they were doing beside it. But then the rest of us would be excavating in just one monitor, and yeah, we couldn't see what we we're doing unless we did that until the the sun came up. And up here, of course, it's it's a much shorter daylight situation in the in the in the sheep part, the main part of the excavation system, daylight's not a problem. And we actually have worked till three and four in the morning at Nuvuk when we were recovering things that were extremely delicate and needed to 
you know, we need to come out in one shot. And, you know, it, it doesn't get dark. The sun just goes around in the sky. It gets a little lower at around 2 in the morning because we're actually – our clock is not aligned very well to sun time up here. But because um, they tried to put the whole state into one time zone and we're not. Right. We should be 4. Um, but – it's it's uh so it's it's depends if the ground is like most of the area where it's it's actually not that well drained and there's water in it then it's it's frozen solid and you get a little bit of thaw and the way really to to make the most ex- expeditious progress is actually to open up as large an area as you have the crew to handle and as you can access. And some of the time I'm working on eroding bluffs and things like that where you don't have access from all four sides. So that's a bit of a challenge. But and then just remove the thaw and just keep removing the thaw. And you know, so you open up more area than than people can excavate. So they do one half of it maybe in the morning and then move to the other half in the afternoon and meanwhile the first half is thawing, so by the time you come back the next day, you've got more thaw and you just keep going like that. Um there's other things have been attempted. Sometimes when you get to uh, a f- particular feature, people have tried hot water. I've done that a couple times if you can get, you know, clean water in the field. Um People have invented all kinds of heater boxes using aircraft heaters and whatnot, although they tend to uh, have deleterious effects on the artifacts, and they also tend to, to melt out the sidewalls, and then you start getting collapse of the sidewalls, or or your data manages to deflate by a couple of yeah, <laughs> a oh, couple yeah. of meters, because the ice lenses melt out, and now all of a sudden something that used to be four, four meters above sea level is three and a half meters above sea level, and you're still trying to relate to the same datum. Um, bit of a problem. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah, that's why I don't actually use those sort of datums. I use a way off-site fixed datum and do everything with a with an electronic theodolite in the data collection program. But I have friends who uh, ran into this other problem. Actually, my husband was was part of an excavation and ran into that problem, which is why I went to the 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 theodolite. But so you you do have to you know meet some challenges. The other the other thing um, is that it. Uh, you, you have massive amounts of artifacts. It's I worked in the you know Mid Atlantic a fair bit and and a bit in New York and New England and and uh, certainly a lot in Pennsylvania. And the preservation is very different here. I and mean, everything's preserved. You know, we were insanely happy if we got a little bone or some a tooth or something in Pennsylvania. You know, anything organic was just really cool. And mostly all you got was lithics and ceramics. And, you know, if it was historic, some glass and whatnot. Here you get everything. I mean, you know, you get the dog dung. Um, you, get, you get literally everything. Right. Um, and I think which, that's, that's a question that people really need to understand, especially people who aren't involved in the field, that the preservation in cold climates and in, in very, very warm and very hot and dry climates is uniquely favorable to recovery. So that would bring us to the next question, which is given that the preservation is so excellent, how do you go about in such a confined time window uh, identifying what you're actually going to excavate, what you're going to leave, what the sampling is, and, and finally, and if that's not enough to digest, what types of sites do you excavate and how do you excavate them? Well, sort of as a matter of... Um happenstance, I guess. I've been excavating eroding coastal sites pretty much for the last, gosh, uh, well, certainly since 
1997, but really even even the site I was doing previously in the early 90s was an eroding coastal site. I mean, that wasn't why we picked it, but it was, in fact, an eroding coastal a winter village. Actually, oh, they've all more or less been that, or at least winter habitation site. Uh, so I, there's so many sites that are threatened. I just really would feel a little... Um, they, I mean, they kind of have to take priority. I mean, you know, you're there you're sitting looking at something falling into the ocean or about to fall into the ocean. And the thought of, okay, well, let me go do something inland is, it's problematic. It really is. Certainly the community is much more concerned about the ones that they can see visibly sure. going to fall away. And and so that's, that's basically what I've been doing, uh, which has given me, I think, the freedom to use uh, – High school students who, when they start, are not trained, who, when I get done with them, are better excavators than a lot of the students who've come up here with at least a bachelor's and, in some cases, a master's degree. Sure. Um, and you would think should have had some excavation experience by that point. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, that aside, they they learn to excavate just fine. Um, so it, it's – I might not – I certainly wouldn't have – you know, 10 years ago, well, 15 years ago, I would never have thought of, oh, let's take some high school students and go excavate a cemetery. Right. But in fact, that's what I've done, um, partly because that's what I had in the way of students, because the community was anxious for students to get trained, and partly because if we didn't do it, yes, they did make some mistakes. You know, it's, 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 and the way we have to excavate in the gravel is not the way you would normally excavate a cemetery. I mean, you can't expose everything and let it sit in place for days because A, the gravel doesn't stay put, so the bones move. You pretty much have to record them and take them up. And B, we do have, uh, the site is also part of an area that sometimes people hunt and recreate in, and occasionally um, some of them seem to recreate in a condition that somehow gets them uh, – renders them unable to notice that they are driving through an open excavation <laughs> or over somebody's grave, So, despite no matter how many pin flags you put around it. So we basically got to the point of just finishing an excavation of a grave in a day, so we didn't have that obnoxious situation. Um, so uh, – yeah, I, we we you know we we record everything with the theodolite. We go very fast, take a lot of pictures. We don't do a lot of drawing in place because there simply isn't the time. Um, but I think we we have very good locational information. Um, you know, you can you can take multiple shots on a on a bone, and it's much much faster than than standard piece plotting and standard writing everything down. And with with somebody good on the transit, and I have a couple of students who've gotten almost as fast as I am, you actually are recording not only the X Y Z um, with precision that you probably can't replicate uh, with hand tapes, but you're also we also record what it is, what level it's in. Um, it gets assigned its preliminary catalog number right then and there. We know what the raw material is. Uh, we know who excavated it. We know what time it was shot in. Um, all that uh, gets recorded right there. And you know, you go in at night and and uh, you know, drop that into the catalog. And so you're you're pretty far down the road. And you don't have issues that I have run into on other projects where somebody gets cold and transposes numbers or right. Uh, I, I was on one project in the Shetlands, which isn't nearly as cold as here, and somebody just somehow mixed up their X and Y axes, and so they were recording the death, you know, we were using the southwest corner as the point that you would measure from, and so they were measuring the southwest, you know, and say it was southwest, uh, you know, from the southwest, say it was 53 centimeters east. For some reason, they were writing the 53 after the, the distance north, and whatever they measured in the north after the west, and 
it only became clear when this was, of course, all done by hand. Somebody, and we had a rainy spell, and somebody was actually trying to put their stuff into a map, and nothing would match. It's just stuff wouldn't plot in the right place for obvious reasons because they'd switch the X and Y centimeters, not the meters. But the yeah, centimeters. yeah, but it's 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 yeah. a uni, it's a uniform mistake. So, well, right? they don't know when they started. They didn't know when they started. Oh. They didn't know when they stopped. So we never were able to really recover that. So this, I mean, this this system gets away from all that. Plus, you don't need squares anymore, which is really great because in in loose gravel, it's very very hard to keep your strings and your you know your corners at all intact. And in frozen tundra, it's really hard to get them the markers in in the first place in a way that's sure, going you know, deep enough for the state put. And if it starts your thawing, nails in. Yeah. exactly. So this is this is a hugely uh, hugely better way to go about it. I think it it requires a lot of um, logistics for having you know a generator usually a backup generator and because the batteries don't like to be cold and so you have to sometimes recharge them and and so on and so forth and you know you're running a computer and it needs batteries and they last about 2 hours but but you can do it all it's just a matter of you bring you know you have a fair bit of redundancy i've built you know we've built the uh, pelican cases to carry all this stuff so you know every morning in the lab you pack it all in there and take it out and we usually as i say have a generator or an inverter or something um, to back, you know, so if something, if we're doing an awful lot of work uh, and we just run all the batteries down, we can start charging one. And, you know, so we're, we're not we're not stuck. We don't have to stop because we don't have our electronics. I mean, we can go back to hand tapes and stuff, but I really don't like to because uh, it's much, much slower. I do teach the students how to do it, you know, in, in the, the kind of this is how you do it. And we will be back with our very fascinating discussion with uh, Dr. Ann Jensen on Arctic archaeology as soon as we come back from these messages. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in every week for Impact Africa with host Tope Fajanbasi. Get ready to be inspired by the people, stories, and opportunities in Africa. We're a community of Africans and friends of Africa living all over the world. Together, we'll celebrate the continent's successes and help provide solutions to some of its greatest challenges. Impact Africa can be heard every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Together, we'll discover that the real Africa is more than what you hear about. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. And we're back. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein with a special episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are discussing uh, doing archaeology in the Arctic with our guest, Dr. Ann Jensen. And uh, you had mentioned that a lot of the work that you're doing is related to coastal attrition and the obvious uh, uh, erosion of the coast and that you have to do this work and sort of follow the landward migration, I guess, of the eroding shoreline. Why don't you tell us a little bit of the types of archaeology that you do uh, going from the prehistoric time frames well into the historic, because I know the historic archaeology of Alaska is fascinating. Take us through the sequences and what kind of sites we can expect, uh, people can expect to, uh, to discuss and to find out about as, as they read more about it. Okay, well, Alaska has sites going back probably 11,000 years uh, ago, but none of that's here on the coastal plain. There's been, uh, there were obvious sea level changes, so most of the coastal people back at that point would have been on the coast, which unfortunately is now well underwater. And as sea level rose and the Bering Strait, uh, you know, reformed and cut the Bering Land Bridge, uh, there was sea ice, at least on, on the part of Alaska that I'm in, and the problem with sea ice is that it tends to crumple up and form ridges and gouge the bottom of the ocean pretty spectacularly. So the underwater archaeology potential for actually finding intact sites is not high, aside from the you know, wonders of having to dive in really cold water and all that. So we really don't have any of those coastal sites from, from very early, except in, in the odd place where the coast uh, was cliffs and it hasn't really changed. So uh, up here, the earliest sites we have probably go back five to six thousand years uh, just based on the, the the geomorphology but we don't actually have sites that have dates that old about as early as we get here uh, in in coastal north Alaska is something called Denby um, and Denby used to be dated back at least you know around 504900 BP. They've revised that downward a little bit because there turned out to be a problem with some of the early dates. It's not entirely clear if it's just the dates that, you know, the particular things that were dated that needed to be revised downward or if, if in fact, the culture really isn't as old as it, it, it was first thought to be. Um, then there's a couple of cultures that clearly seem to relate to Denby and sort of follow it called Chorus and Norton, um, coastal, used pottery. Uh, and then their apparent successor culture, at least based on the lithic technology, Iputak. Iputak don't use pottery, but they're probably one, or at least at one point, were probably one of the better known archaeological cultures, certainly out of Alaska ever. Uh, in the 40s, actually, a CCC, a Civilian Conservation Corps project, so it must have been actually in the 30s. Um, right, yeah. Discovered, discovered uh, under... Under Frolic Rainey and, and uh, Helio Larson excavated a huge uh, 
many, like 600 houses, they think. Uh, they didn't excavate them all, but a very large village at Point Hope, um, which was at a, a place by a little lake called Iputak, um, which means string. But anyway, the culture got named after the the, the, the place, um, and it, it has a great – they've got really spectacular engravings. They use – massive amounts of ivory and their burials of which they excavated quite a number um, are really spectacular and kind of strange they've got some fairly neat burial masks uh, some of it clearly involves um, I would say post-mortem and actually post decay unless they defleshed them but there's not really I don't believe there's any sign of defleshing uh, there's supposed to be a book coming out very soon on um, the, the Iputak remains so we'll see if anybody found any signs of of, uh, you know, postmortem defleshing. But anyway, there is at least one skeleton that was found with a very delicate ivory rod with a little hand on the top of it up the spinal canal. And there's no way I could envision that thing being stuffed up there in an right. intact cadaver and not breaking. So obviously this, I, I suspect what happened was the person had become skeletonized and then was what this was done. But there's a lot of masks. They were uh, a number of them were buried with sort of ivory and jet eyes um, underneath their eyelids. Um, and they were all very shallow burials. So uh, some of them must have popped up occasionally because in Point Hope, they don't have the boogeyman. They have the man with the ivory eyes who's going to come and get you. Um, some of my Point Hope friends vividly recall being told that if they didn't behave or weren't home on time, you know, or whatever, that the man with the ivory eyes was going to come and get them. And uh, so obviously people had seen some of these folks uh, you know, these burials. But anyway, it was very, it was quite spectacular. And I think it got Time Magazine. And it was just Saturday Evening Post, probably, if I recall correctly. And anyway, it was a very widely publicized archaeological discovery. And um, for years and years and years, people, and I actually have Doug Ed Iputaka, the, the, the October episode was actually saving an Iputak house or salvaging an Iputak house that was going to be uh, displaced or, yeah, buried by a seawall. Uh, the site is eroding. Uh, it's right next to their runway. Their runway was eroding. Uh, so the, the solution was to try and stop the erosion with a seawall. And that's how it was going on there. But uh, for years and years, people have been finding Iputak further and further south, places like Deering, um, Cape Cruisenstorm, Cape Espenberg. Um, you know, and but never north of Point Hope, which really always seemed weird because Point Hope, the Iputak settlement of Point Hope, remained the largest Iputak settlement ever seen. And just, so, just for the record, it, though, give give people an idea where in Alaska this is, because a lot of people aren't familiar with the geography. Okay, so if you imagine Alaska's kind of your hand, if you stick if you stick your your if you make a fist and then stick your thumb and finger out, that's kind of like Alaska. Um, and so the illusions would be your your index finger, the panhandle, where, which is Clinkett and Haida and, you know, northwest coast Indian country. That's your thumb. Um, right. Would be at the – so Point Hope would kind of be a little point that sticks out um, at pretty much where your little finger knuckle would be. And uh, Nuvuk Barrow is the very top. I mean, that is right. – the Nuvok site is literally the northernmost point in the United States of America. It is literally the absolutely northernmost point and getting less northern every year, but as it erodes, but yeah. Sure. So so yeah, so anyway, there 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 was this Iputak site. And then um in And how old was the site? We, how old was the site? Um 
Well, they've the big- got dates. Uh, Ipetac, some of their dates, their dates were running from about 400 to, there's Ipetac dates as late as 1,200 some places. So at least in some places, it seems to have hung around and overlapped with other cultures. Um, if, unless these people's, you know, unless the dates are really squirrely, but I see no, no real problem with the dates. Uh, so right. apparently it, they hung around for a while, but anyway, the, the big question, one of the big questions to me always was, well, why did they stop at Point Hope? I mean, how do you have, who's ever heard of having your biggest settlement literally in the absolute edge of your territory? Never heard of such a thing. Um, well, it turns out it wasn't because in 2008, uh, we actually had excavated, um, quite a bit of, of, of the, the Nuvuk Cemetery, and um, we were, I actually have a colleague named Clara Leakes, who's now at the Sorbonne, who specializes in wood use, and so driftwood. And there was some driftwood hanging out of the bluff below what we thought was the cultural level. Uh, and so she wanted to pick some, and I said, okay, fine, let's excavate. <laughs> you know, we'll here, give you a couple of people, and you just excavate it off so you can pick a nice log instead of just dragging them out of the profile. So she did, and then all of a sudden they're like, there's a flake in here. So I came over and looked, and sure enough, there's a flake, but, you know, among the logs. and But there was almost a half meter of clean gravel. So the best I could think of was, you know, somebody had kicked it in from the surface. I mean, you know, you put something on the surface and step on it twice, and it can, you know, I can put it 10 centimeters down. Um, sure. It's, it's a little bit problematic there. But anyway, so I just really, eh, whatever. Um, and I actually took more pictures of a, a piece of salmonberry pie that we had for lunch that day than I did of that flake when I look back at my photos. Interesting. But the next day, they were excavating along, still hadn't excavated the logs for her to pick, and they found an arrow. And it was a very distinctive Iputak arrow. So all of a sudden, we now have Iputak at Point Barrow. And we, we did a fair bit of excavation. Um, we basically had something that would be the front yard of a house. Um, the house itself having eroded over the winter before we got there, as best we can tell. And uh, we got two sled runners intact from two separate sleds. We got a paddle, a large whetstone, um, an area that had been a hearth. But the whole thing had been overwashed by a wave. There was actually like a strand line, you know, like debris that gets thrown up when a wave comes up the beach and drops everything, goes down. Mm-hmm. Uh, was right smack on top of all this. So the best we could figure, because this is all stuff you would really need and you wouldn't just abandon yeah. Um, was that this was A, a long-term occupation because you have both summer and winter transportation gear sitting there. And B, the people did not come out of this storm very well. Um, they either died or some, you know, ran away, but I can't imagine leaving your stuff behind and not even making an attempt to salvage it. Uh, so uh, we actually dated that. I have four very good dates on it, and uh, it's actually three to 400 A.D. So it's some of the earliest Ipetak dates around, and here it is 300 miles north of of Point Hope, which leads me to think that probably a lot of other sites have Iputak, but it was just a lot deeper and people right. didn't get to the bottom of them. Because, you know, usually you get three years or something and people work, you know, don't tend to spend much longer at remote sites. Just it's kind of the way it works. And because you do tend to open fairly large areas rather than doing column samples, in part because of the whole thaw issue I talked about earlier. I'm thinking people just didn't get to the bottom of a lot of these things. So there may, for all I know, there's, you know, 10 more epitax sites before you get to Point Hope. Uh, just don't know. We found a bit more of it in uh, 2010, and we actually have some GPR returns that we think might be more structures. Um, was not successful in getting funding to do them last year, and then this year, or to do them this year, and then 
uh, I don't, you know, with the with the Wallachpa issues going on, I don't I don't know that I'm going to try. I'm not even sure that the land is still there. There's been a fair bit of erosion at the point, so, um, you know, I'll have to go evaluate that next spring, I guess, and and see if I want to try writing another proposal. But I, I'm a little dubious that that those GPR returns are you know are still there, which is too bad because it would have really been nice to. To get an tax structure, but uh, unfortunately, some of the reviewers thought that one should do it in, in stages, and you can't really salvage things that are in an erosion zone in stages. They don't wait for several years for you to write another sure. proposal. So, you know, it's practical matters. Uh, sometimes I think it must be nice to work inland where nothing's eroding and, and everything's already – all the organics have already decayed. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> the lithics will sit there for a while, but that's and, not uh, that's not my world. We will take another break, and we'll be right back with our guest, uh, Dr. Ann Jensen, and our discussion on Arctic Arctic archaeology after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program.
And this is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with our special guest, Dr. Ann Jensen, in our discussion of Arctic archaeology and how uh, archaeologists are working in very northern and extreme climates to recover uh, tremendous amounts of uh, evidence from the material cultural record because of the excellent preservation. And we want to talk about a cemetery at Thule and... Um, and you were mentioning that there's quite an interesting connection between this spectacular cemetery and uh, sort of the uh, the progenitors of, of that culture and the contemporary uh, Native American peoples who uh, actually have a lot to do with the type of work you're doing. Why don't you discuss the cemetery and uh, lead us into indigenous associations with your work and, and, and with cultures? Sure. Well, the, the Thule Cemetery at Nuvuk, uh, it, it actually, well, the cemetery at Nuvuk was in use for a very long time. The earliest dated grave we have is 875 to 1005 AD, uh, radiocarbon. And there's actually uh, graves there with, with headstones from the, the, the Christian era that run into, I think, the 1920s. Uh, for a long time, there was a village at, at Nuvuk that was actually bigger than the village at Utkiavik, what's now modern Barrow. Uh, it was actually a better place to go hunting. So there were, up until, I think, 1910 census, there was actually more people living out at the point than there were in Barrow. But uh, mm-hmm. Charlie Brower, the trader, and the school, and the preacher, and the doctor all settled in Barrow, and so people started shifting, you know, the, the, the center of gravity sort of shifted toward Barrow. But anyway, uh, there are many people who live in modern Barrow who identify as, as Nuvuk mute or Nuvuk mute, uh, people of Nuvuk. They, their families, in some cases, uh, there's a few people whose parents were born there, um, many more whose grandparents and, and lots whose great-grandparents were born there. There's actually a dance group uh, that's of people who are from there. So there's, there's these, these people have direct descendants, uh, and we know this for a number of reasons. So anyway, this, this cemetery was pretty much, uh, they knew about the Mark Graves, but... What hadn't the village had actually had to move several times. There's actually ethnographic or uh, ethnohistoric evidence uh, of them having moved in around probably 1800, having to move what they described as a mile and a half further in to the area that we're now excavating, or just behind in front of the area that we're now excavating. And they, uh, due to erosion of the point, even in the 1800s. And what seems to have happened was they had a village, and the traditional pattern up here is to have the cemetery kind of inland and up up away from the ocean from, from wherever you live. And so I think that's what was going on then. But as they had to move, they were gradually winding up moving on top of the early cemetery because they didn't really have markers or anything. So they kind of forgot. You know, it was, it was great, 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 great grandpa's grave. They just didn't remember where it was anymore. It was just gravel, right? So they built a house. Or whatever. So anyway, uh, and so people knew about the modern cemetery. And as a matter of fact, when we first started working there, people would tell us we were digging in the wrong place and point at the graves with the heads, you know, with the boards. And it's like, no. And there's a like, yeah, you are. And it's, usually, it was always nice if we were actually working on a grave because then you could show people that we weren't actually crazy and that there were indeed people buried there. You know, if you had one that they could see. Um, but anyway, so the the. The community, many of the people in the community are descendants of these folks. And fairly early on, we uh, we wanted to, since the, the decision was made, we talked a lot about the elders before, the elders before we started doing this. The decision was made that the people 
would have to be moved. We couldn't, they couldn't be left in place because the ground was disappearing that they were buried in. So um, the idea was to excavate them carefully, respectfully, record as much information as possible. And the elders said pretty much in so many words, get the data. And then the idea was the person would be reburied in the town cemetery. Um, The artifacts they decided should be kept so people could learn from them. So they don't, you know, their grave goods do not get reburied with them. They get, they get, they stay. Uh, so that's what we started doing. And fairly early on, I, I was, I tried to get a number of physical anthropologists because they were not against having people, you know, phys- physically, you know, a physical anthropologist look at and record the bones. That was not something they found problematic. Uh-huh. Um, but they didn't want to keep them out and they didn't want to send them around. They wanted them treated like people. I mean, that's, that's basically the premise is this is a a relative who has died. They died a long time ago, but, you know, they, they, uh, it's still a relative. they had no problem with it. It's still yeah. a relative, and it's still yeah. a person, and you treat sure. it as such, or you yeah. treat the remains as such. And so they, uh, it took me a while to find someone. Fortunately, I, I got Dennis O'Rourke, and I ran into each other at an IASA meeting, and he had a graduate student who was wanting to work on things. And um, anyway, uh he he got his grad student came up and and recorded them here and we also then talked to the relatives about the possibility of doing genetic and ancient dna analysis on them because that's what dennis specializes in and they were quite interested and then that actually grew into a fairly large project working both with the remains from nuvuk as well as a whole modern component so we can also um it's they're getting to the stage where they're close to publication, but it's, you know, there's, there's several lines of evidence that these people are indeed the relatives of, of the, modern, the modern folks. And so it's, it's been very rewarding working with mostly, mostly high school students, um, and some of them have continued working with me as they go on to college. We've had one who actually majored in anthropology and a couple others who um, probably are going to go into poli-sci or something, but still work for me in the lab and in, in the field. Now, summers. are these high school students uh, from the area or brought in from yeah. out of state? Ah, okay. Mostly, mostly from the area. We've had a few who are uh, descendant community people who are growing up somewhere else. You know, their family moved away, but they come back and visit, um, sure. you know, or, or come here and stay. We've got uh, one student who's in Middlebury. Well, actually, I think she's in Japan on exchange at the moment, but but her family was from up here, but she, her her immediate, you know, her parents now live in California. Um, so there have been, been a number of, of those. We've had the most of the undergraduates, well, so we've had a few undergraduates from other places and graduate students. We've had one graduate student whose family is actually from up here who's worked worked on the project for a summer and probably if we get funded, we'll come back and he wants to come back and work on a lock because he thinks it'd be fun if he has finished writing his master's thesis by then. Does he, does he <laughs> want to continue in the profession? or? Um, well, he's an older student, actually, so I'm not sure if he's necessarily going to continue in the profession per se, or uh, I, I think he kind of likes to keep his hand in at it anyway. So that's not, not entirely clear. I don't know that he's, he, I don't think he wants to go on for a doctorate. It's, it's, uh, you know, the writing is definitely a struggle for him. So I don't think he's sure. in the least bit interested in writing a dissertation. But, um, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's writing a pretty interesting thesis. And, and uh, anyway, he really likes field archaeology. And he's a great person in the field because he's got a lot of, of practical skills, you know, making sure. tents and boats and all that sort of stuff work, too. So um, he's, he's really handy that way. And he's good as a, you know, sort of as a older example for, for younger 
kids anyway. Uh, are you seeing you know, are you seeing more and more uh, participation and cooperation with indigenous people and the archaeology? Is it uh, becoming an item that is is getting some emphasis in in Alaska and in the archaeological community generally? Um, certainly in Alaska, uh, some of it has to do with with where the sites are located. You, you much of many of the interesting sites are actually located on land that's that's held in one way or another by a native corporation or a native individual, and so obviously they have to give their permission. And uh, you know, usually they they're interested in participating at some level. Uh, I think there's a few places now that are starting to do. Um, starting to do things on maybe close to the scale that we've been doing them here. It's a bit of a challenge. Uh, some I have a friend who tried to work with the school district, and it turned out there was all kinds of permissions and constraints on the school district that, that we didn't have. Uh, we actually hired them as the, the, the nonprofit that the funding ran through, actually hired them as workers. And so we not only did they get to do archaeology, but for many of them it was their first work experience. So, you know, we spent almost a day on just how, you know, what's work like. Uh, how do you fill out a timesheet? Sure, what yeah. All that sort of stuff, which is very useful stuff. I mean, everybody that applies actually has to do a resume, which they then, of course, get to keep. And we'll help them do all this if they don't have, uh, you know, if, if nobody else is able to help them or the school can't help them do a resume, we help them do it. Um, but then they, they go through the process. And then they do archaeology. And we had fund, we had some funding for several years uh, from the Department of Energy through a program called Education Through Cultural and Historical Educa- Organizations, which is pretty well ended. Um, but they actually had external evaluators for, for their grants. And so the external evaluator that we had was was a pretty, pretty, pretty good guy. And he actually interviewed every participant. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop the very fascinating discussion on the archaeology of the northern climes. And I want to thank my special guest, Dr. Ann Jensen, for participating in the program. And until next time, we will see you again. Uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.